it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. So there's been a big debate that has gone on in the country, state by state, about when states should open up, what activities people should be free to do, and all the rest. And it has uh, been something that has been very contentious in some states where there have been residents who've been very unhappy with state restrictions on activity. And then there were eight states that have never had any restrictions on activity, never went into any form of lockdown. Well, I was stunned to read something that just absolutely blew me away. So it's data based on how people have been spending in states that had strict lockdowns and states that had no lockdowns. And so they looked at states with strict lockdowns like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, and Louisiana had a strict one for a while versus those eight states that had no lockdown. The stunner, according to Barron's Magazine, is that there was virtually no difference in how much economic activity reduced in states that had strict lockdowns versus states that had no lockdowns. So spending declined for what's known as discretionary spending by a little more than 30% in states that had strict lockdowns and slightly less than 30% in states that had no lockdown. How could that be? The reason is that uh, polling by Gallup found that people overwhelmingly are waiting to see, there's a quote, Wait to see what happens with the spread of the virus before resuming normal daily activities. And that's 70% of people. Many others said that they are reducing their activities indefinitely. That they're so freaked out by coronavirus that they don't even have a time period when they're going to resume normal activity. And this is, this is rough when you look at what we're facing with the U.S. economy. Consumers are spending overall around the country 30% less than they were before coronavirus entered the picture. And I'm going to sound like a broken record going back two months, but I'll tell you the core and key to getting people confident and getting out and feeling comfortable doing normal activities is for us to follow the standard public health protocol that we're not doing in the United States yet. And our economic vitality depends on us having massive widespread testing followed by tracing of people who've been in close contact with people who test positive And then isolation of people who are carrying coronavirus 
but are not symptomatic yet. That if we don't do those things, you don't create an environment where people feel confident to go do normal life activities or what were normal life activities. I think about us with the eating out. So uh, this does not sound very frugal and this will disappoint you and me, but pre-coronavirus, we as a family ate most of our meals out and it was more a special occasion when we would eat at home. Right now we're eating 18 or 19 out of 21 meals each week prepared at home, eaten at home. And so, uh, you know, I'm fixing my own breakfast and lunch, and we have a rotating schedule with um, my two children that are under our household. I've got an adult daughter who lives about 40 minutes away with her husband and son and so we've got a schedule of who prepares dinner and two of the four of us under the roof prepare dinner each night and then we have the two nights off each week where we go pick up food picking it up uh parking lot pickup what do they call there's a term you use for that curbside curbside pickup thank you kim and so that's how we're getting food and so a major major change in our lives where in terms of spending typical family 60 percent of their food dollar or more was being spent eating out and today it's a very tiny amount and restaurants employ huge numbers of people who don't have jobs right now because of those decisions people like me are making and my family eating home and I actually would love to eat out but because we don't have a standard public health protocol in place in the United States it is actually something that we are afraid of as a family eating out in a traditional way sitting down in a restaurant doing something we so enjoyed pre-coronavirus so if we want the economy to really come back we've got to create the conditions that generate public confidence and country after country around the world has proven it's effective if you have widespread testing you have tracing and you have isolation so that you prevent the spread of coronavirus and the fatality rate. You know, we don't really talk about this because it's an uncomfortable thing, but we are 4% of the world's population and we're 28% of world coronavirus deaths because we don't have the public health equation right. And we are answering your questions by you posting at clark.com slash ask and then producers Kim and Joel alternating, alternate asking your questions. And Kim, who do you have up? First up today is Ralph. He says he's 80 years old and he still works. He works for a major craft store and they've been closed, but they're about to reopen. So he wants to know if he is called back to work, 
Can he refuse to go back until things are safer? And if he does that, would he lose his unemployment? This is terrible to say, but unless your state has a specific protection based on your age, if you do not go back when you're called back to work, you will lose your right to unemployment. That generally, although the the guidelines issued by the White House say that you would be in a category that would not be wise for you to go back, I'll read this to you. Uh, the elderly and those with serious, this is quote from the White House guidelines, with serious underlying health conditions, including high blood pressure, chronic lung disease, diabetes, obesity, asthma, and those whose immune system is compromised, such as by chemotherapy for cancer and other conditions requiring such therapy, should be restricted from staffing of work sites. So this is only a guideline for employers and for the states, but very few states have adopted a procedure that would protect you and provide you with continued unemployment compensation based on being 80 years old and it not being safe for you to go back into a working environment. As you're probably aware, people older than 75 are a relatively small percent of the U.S. population, but account for a very high percent of those who unfortunately have lost their lives from coronavirus. Joel? Clark George says, I have a small IRA that holds just one stock, Tesla. I've had it for several years, so my money has increased. But lately, Tesla's had major ups and downs. So being 67 and a half years old and retired, should I just hold on, convert to cash, or move to something more stable? Well, (laughs) what a great question. So if you're not aware, I have been a Tesla driver for eight years now. And I love the vehicle, and I've never owned the stock. And it's because it's what's known as a story stock. You know, Tesla is worth more its market value than GM, Ford, and Chrysler, GM, uh, Chrysler's FCA. Uh, GM, FCA, and um, Ford all combined, Tesla is worth more than all of them, even though they sell a tiny number of vehicles. Because there are those who believe that Tesla is the future. But its earnings don't justify its price, which is why it moves so erratically and moves wildly up and down in value. So it is a high-risk holding. You have to decide for yourself, do you feel comfortable being in an ultra-high risk? If you're in retirement or nearing retirement, I much prefer that you reduce your risk with the money you have if this money you have in this small IRA is money you depend on to live on. If it's like extra, it's like icing on your monthly cake and you want to continue to take the wild ride, take the wild ride. But if it's money you are dependent on, it's too high risk to me for you to be in Tesla stock. Kim? Jackie says, my fiance and I, we've been together for 10 years. We're in the middle of planning a wedding that was supposed to be about four months from now in the end of August. Obviously, a lot has changed and we're putting a pause on all planning. We've decided to push the wedding date back a full year because there's just too much uncertainty right now. 
We've contacted our wedding venue, which is the only place that we paid a non-refundable deposit to, and they're not willing to let us push the date back of of the wedding till next year, even though they are available. We've asked them by phone and through a long email. Is there any other way that you would advise us to present our case? This is a terrible problem, and I think you're the third person who has posted a question for me about postponing a wedding date and various things you paid deposits on being non-refundable. It is historical in the wedding industry that once a date is booked, that that booking is non-refundable. There's virtually no other event kind of facility thing where that is the case. And if that is in the contract you signed with them and they don't wish to flex on it and you have appealed to their humanity and they still don't want to flex on it, you don't legally have a right to require them to make a refund. I know you have pushed your wedding date a whole year. Let's call that a tentative plan because it's possible that by August it will feel really comfortable having your wedding and you might not be able to have everything exactly as you would have liked in terms of arrangements, but maybe the way you turn this lemon into lemonades with the money you have paid is that if the coast does look clear as you move into midsummer, maybe you do go ahead and have your original August wedding date since you've already paid for the place anyway. Normally at this time, you hear the Clark Rageous moment where you hear me talk about a scam where somebody's trying to rip you off so that you won't have it happen to you or a company that's acting badly towards people and trying to bring a focus to the bad things they're doing. But right now, we need some lighthearted things. So we're now doing the Clark Rave, where we talk about something where people are going out of their way to help fellow Americans or help our country. Well, one charity that's very dear and near to my heart, Habitat for Humanity, has really been affected by coronavirus because Habitat depends on volunteers to build the homes. There are hardworking families that were looking forward to being able to buy a home at a lower price because of Habitat and the generosity of volunteers, and that's not happening right now. So this story I read in the Louisville newspaper is about a construction company called Wittenberg Construction that is now building with its workers on its payroll habitat houses, workers that have been idled because the projects they were working on aren't happening. So they've got master carpenters that are framing multiple habitat houses right now in Kentucky. And the crew sizes, because they're professional carpenters, much, much smaller, so they're able to maintain proper social distancing. They're following the CDC guidelines. They're donating the time and talent. So it's completely different than a normal habitat build. But there they are helping habitat build homes. And ultimately, the idea of habitat fits this perfectly. Coming together as a community 
to make affordable housing available and accessible to families who wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. And so I salute this construction company, Wittenberg, paying its employees to go frame up these houses and make it happen. And we're going to have one effort like this after another around the country where people rise to the occasion and make a difference. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. And we face a demographic conundrum like I've never experienced in my life. You know, age discrimination has always been an issue in the workforce. I remember during the Great Recession when I would do um, TV productions called Clark Howard Lives or Clark Howard Town Halls, depending on what TV was calling it at the time, and I would talk with people who were past age 50 over and over again, they were having terrible problems that they perceived and likely were age discrimination after having lost a job in a layoff trying to find another job. And this has been a problem for as long as I can remember that employers tend to skew their hiring young and discriminate against those that are older. Well, right now, this is likely to be much more of a problem because if you look at who has been dying of coronavirus, very, very few people under age 50, overwhelmingly those with pre-existing conditions, have been the ones that have died from coronavirus. Very small percent of the population, somewhere as little as 4 to 7% of the people who have passed away are people under age 50. On the other hand, as you go every year past age 50, the risk of getting really ill or dying from coronavirus goes up. So employers are not going to be keen to hire people that are older. Then you add on top of it a question I was asked just this past weekend. Uh, Someone has a mom who has not been going to work because she had been working in a supermarket and had asked to be off the schedule because of her age. She's mid-60s and is worried about the risk to her in a customer contact profession being older. And she's been told by her employer that she can't stay out unpaid anymore. She either has to quit or come back to work. And so think of the risk to her and going back to work in a direct contact profession like working in a supermarket. And so there's going to be decisions that people make as older workers who will choose potentially if they're in a position to to retire early. There will be others who don't want to retire or not in a position to do so but are going to face clear discrimination where employers are going to not want to hire them because they're worried about uh, potential medical costs if they provide medical benefits or they're worried about 
being sued if somebody gets sick who's older. I don't know how we're going to address this as a country, but our economy will suffer if we don't make accommodations for people who are older who are potentially vulnerable and can't work in conditions that their employer offers or people who just have trouble finding work because employers are flat out discriminating this is not okay it'll hurt our economy in addition to hurting the lives economically of those individuals this is a clear problem and I wish I had a magic wand solution to it and for it. And we're alternating with the questions you're asking for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel asking your questions. Who's up now? All right, this is from Teresa. And this is Kim. And this is Kim, that's right, asking on behalf of Teresa. She says she's a PE teacher in Connecticut. Right now she's teaching her PE classes on Zoom. Her daughter is also a PE teacher in California. She found a flight from Newark to San Diego for $68 on June 2nd. And she has this idea that she wants to fly out to see her daughter and then help her daughter move her Jeep across the country for the summer. So the basic question is, if they did this massive road trip, would they be able to find Wi-Fi, hotels, gas, groceries, and most importantly, they say ice cream for their return trip? Do you think it's crazy to plan something of this size right now? As far as being able to handle the logistics of going across the country, that will not be a problem. There's going to be plenty of gas available, plenty of hotels. Hotels are running under 10% occupancy right now. So the things you're going to need, food along the way, they're all totally accessible. So that's not a problem. There are some steps you should take in order to reduce the risk of disease as you travel across the country at hotels. I mean, if you just Google or use any search engine, you'll find the simple steps you should take in order to protect yourself at hotels at uh, you know, shopping for food, going to restaurants. There are precautions that if taken, respected and taken, will significantly reduce the health risk to you as you travel on that trip across the country. But in terms of being able to do it logistically, it will be no issue, no problem at all. Joel? Clark Joseph says, I'm interested in becoming a financial coach. There are so many programs available, though, uh, across the Internet. It's difficult to determine which ones are valid and legitimate to help me become a financial coach. So do you have any recommendations? So my favorite is a nonprofit that is all about teaching somebody and certifying you to be a good financial counselor and educator. And it's called, if you go to the website, which is saveandinvest.org, saveandinvest.org, it is a mouthful of an organization. It's the Association for Financial Counseling and Planning Education. And it is the best I know of in order to do education of people about personal finance. I've been familiar with it for a long time from my involvement in doing 
financial education at military posts, at um, Army, Navy, and Air Force posts around the United States. And it, the work that the financial counseling and education folks do is essential to helping military personnel, especially enlisted personnel, from ending up in deep financial trouble. And this is not just for military personnel, but I just wanted you to know this is a great way for you to get the knowledge that you can be really helpful to people. Again, the website you should go to to learn more is saveandinvest.org. And remember, anybody can pretend that they are a financial expert. Anybody can hold themselves out to be that. There are a lot of people that are faking it, and you got to be really careful because it's your money that you've worked hard for that you can get ripped off from if you're dealing with somebody who is not actually a truly trained professional who, in the event of somebody guiding you on your individual investments, needs to be what's known as a fiduciary, that they are putting your interests first and always. Kim? Carol says, is Costco one of your sponsors? I see so many reviews and recommendations of them, but not for Sam's Club or other competing big box stores. Is there a reason for this? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I will tell you that we've been shopping a lot at Sam's Club through coronavirus because I have the premium membership at Sam's Club where we get free delivery with no minimum for most of the items that Sam's Club sells. And I'm also a huge fan of Costco. So we write about both. I will tell you, though, that we get a lot more people reading the stories that we post on Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com about Costco. Costco has kind of like a well, it's beyond a cult status since I think 60 million Americans are members. But um, people really, really have a stronger connection to Costco as a store than they do to Sam's Club, which probably explains why we get a lot more people interested in and reading the stories that we post about Costco. But I shop both, and I love them both, and uh, I will tell you, that day in and day out, I enjoy the merchandise mix more at Costco, but I've not been in the building since March, March the 11th, I guess it is, when we went on lockdown in our household, and I've not been allowed in a store since. It's not like my wife has made me a prisoner. It's just I've agreed to our house rules of engagement which is we're not going in any stores. Hey, Clark. Yes. Can we also speak to Carol's question of sponsorship and endorsement? Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay, no problem. Um, and Carol, one thing you said is sponsorship. We don't do that. So I am unbought and unbossed. I do no endorsements. I don't accept money from any company for anything I say or recommend that everything that I talk about and everything we write about is based solely on the fact that it is what I believe 
and one of our writers believes, but we do not engage in any what's known as pay for play. That uh, it's important that you know that what I always intend to have is your trust. And the way I earn that trust is you know that what I say, what I write, what I do on television, it's always because it's what I believe in good faith. And no one's ever going to put words in my mouth by giving me money. Not going to happen. Joel? Clark JP says, has the IRS relaxed the amount a taxpayer can give someone without tax consequences due to the pandemic? Some parents may have to help out children, and the $15,000 2020 limit may not be adequate in all cases. That is a great question, and there has been no relaxation of the $15,000 limit, and you are in a great position as a parent that you're even asking the question. You can afford to share more than that with your kids. There is a workaround that requires a little bit of work, but you are allowed to lend money to anyone. doesn't have to be a family member. You just have to charge what's known as an arm's length interest rate, which is unbelievably low right now, uh, depending on how long the loan is for. It's plus or minus 1%. I mean, it's like nothing. You can find the tables. And then over the years, you can forgive that money. So you can lend them whatever past the 15000 And if you're married and your son or daughter is married, you can give up to $60,000 essentially all at once without any tax consequences because you can give 15000 to, let's say, your son, 15000 to your daughter-in-law, your spouse can give 15000 to each, and you get 60000 tax-free to them right away. But otherwise, do the loan. Write a simple loan document, have a stated interest rate, but remember, it's not like they really have to pay that money back because it can be forgiven over time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you have a question for me, post it at Clark.com slash ask. And producer Kim, who are you asking a question for right now? This is on behalf of Kevin. He says, with all of us becoming more and more thrifty, I was looking for a recommendation for a good antenna. I bought one already and it was wasted money, thus prompting my question. This is more art than science. And I have been down this road before because I've discovered it doesn't really matter what you spend on an over-the-air antenna. It really matters... um, how it works 
based on what you read from others. Now, one thing I'm going to suggest to you if you haven't done so yet is go to antennaweb.org and see based on where you live what level of antenna you need for where you are, and it'll let you know if you're okay with just a, a regular antenna at the TV, whether you need what's known as an attic-placed antenna, or whether you need one on the roof of your home to get a good signal. But start there. Then the second thing is if you go to uh, bestbuy.com or walmart.com or um, reviews are not as trustworthy on Amazon, but I guess you go to amazon.com and read the reviews, not look at the stars, read the reviews that people post about how good an antenna is and how it's how far they are from where the broadcast towers are and all that, you'll be able to find one that you'll be happy with. But it's possible, I know this is crazy, it's possible to find an antenna to pick up over-the-air channels that's between $10 and $30 that will do a very good job if Antenna Web says you're in a zone where you should be able to pick up most of the over-the-air channels with just a simple TV antenna attached to your TV. If you've not heard this before, there are in many metro areas dozens of channels that you can pick up free over the air that you're not even aware exist if historically you've been on cable or satellite and you get just a very few small number of local channels. Joel? Clark Sandy says, how should I be thinking about insurance coverage for my home? How do I know how much coverage is appropriate for me? So you know what homes go for in your neighborhood and what you paid for yours. And the thing is, rebuilding will cost more than what homes generally cost to buy standing there in your neighborhood. So i like for you to talk with someone at your homeowner's insurance company and tell them what building costs are in your area for renovation. And that's kind of the, the formula. I have found historically with my insurer that they way underestimate what it would cost to rebuild a portion of our home if it was destroyed by a fire or a storm or whatever. And in many cases, you would be underinsured if you didn't insist on buying more coverage on what it would cost truly to rebuild versus what they say it would cost to rebuild. You can figure if you have partial damage to your home, it will cost you twice the cost per square foot to repair that damage as it costs to buy a home in your neighborhood. Use that as a calculation. The podcast normally would end here, but because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to. And this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant. So not one, but two friends have ended up going to get in their vehicles in the last five days and they've both been dead. Why? Because neither person had driven the vehicles in weeks. So 
both of them older vehicles. The batteries died in both vehicles. Neither would start with a jump. One was a gas engine vehicle. The other was an electric vehicle, which is surprising to people because electric vehicles, some of them have both a regular 12-volt battery like a gas engine car would have and then have the battery pack in place of a gas engine. And it's the traditional battery that died and had to be replaced. And so as we're staying at home, mostly, for many people, and a lot of families, there might be two cars, two vehicles, and when you go out, you tend to go in whatever people's favorite vehicle is, and that second one ends up unloved, unused, and ends up potentially dead. The thing is, alternate. Drive that vehicle that's not loved as much, because otherwise, it's not going to love you back, and you're going to have problems. So you can drive around the neighborhood for five or seven minutes every so often, and you'll be a-okay if you do that. But don't just leave it sitting there. And I saw something in, I don't remember where I saw this, but it was something I had not thought about, and that is the tires on a vehicle suffer if you leave it sitting for too long unloved. So you need to get out and drive the vehicle just to protect the tires so the tires can protect you. Because the longer you let a vehicle sit undriven, the tires have something that was referred to in the story I read. I think it was called a bulge in the tire. And the tire will not perform safely like you want if you leave that thing undriven. Uh, One other thing is... There are people who never wash a car. And I was walking with my wife this past Sunday, and somebody whose vehicle had not been washed said, I'm single. Are you interested in going out on a date in the dirt on the vehicle? And I thought that was really, really funny and a great sense of humor. But It's not the best thing for the long-term health of the pain of the vehicle to leave it in a condition where you can write messages in it. So that vehicle of yours, give it some love. I mean, think about how reliable vehicles are today. It used to be that, well, I'm old enough, I can tell you, I remember when vehicles just weren't as reliable as they are today and it requires just a little bit of stuff from us to keep it that way and so i encourage you to be kind to that thing so it can be kind to you and here's something else i wanted to talk about today so normally we in america are just about the world's worst at saving money we historically have not been people who've lived on less than what we've made. In fact, there was a time in the, what do we call them, the OOs, back in 2005, 4, 5, 6, 
that Americans had become what's known as negative net savers, something almost unprecedented since records of academic um, economic activity have been kept, that Americans were spending a dollar one for every dollar they made, living very heavily on borrowed money. Now, since the Great Recession, we've been a little better, varying by year, typically saving four to six cents of every dollar we make. But the shock of what's happened to the economy with coronavirus has led to a massive change in how we're handling money. So as we see our neighbors lose jobs, as we see our friends lose their jobs or have hours or income cut back, the rest of us still working are making a radical change. Listen to this. The newest data from the U.S. Department of Commerce finds that the average American is saving 13% of what they make. One three. Now, this is in a terrible situation for us health-wise and with our economy. This is actually one thing that's good, that we as Americans have not respected enough over the years uncertainty and what happens when life changes. And so that's why Americans have not been good at putting money aside. So seeing people saving 13 cents of every dollar is a real step in the right direction. If you have been scared into saving, I hope it becomes a habit that you'll maintain year after year because I can tell you it will change your life and change your future. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.